Welcome to CRT2, Columbia Race Talks, Critical Race Theory. I am Flores Forbes. And I'm Kendall Thomas. In this episode, our Columbia Law School student team brings you a story about environmental racism, color lines, geography, and social control. Join us for this deep dive into what critical race theory is and why it matters. And now to our story. In St. James Parish, Louisiana, there is a class in the site of historic slaves. Descendants of the buried continue to live in the neighboring majority black communities. In the fields where enslaved people cultivated sugarcane, smokestacks from factories now exhale toxic chemicals. Where the roots of the plantation economy took hold, natural gas, oil, and other pipelines snake omnipresent in the ground. The proximity of these industries to black communities is the result of laws that have operated to place black people directly in contact with environmental pollutants. In this episode, we'll talk to a community member from St. James Parish, Louisiana, and a city planner from New York City. We'll hear about how laws have operated to place high polluting industries near black communities. We'll hear about how black communities and the health of community members have suffered. And we'll hear about the challenges that impacted communities face when they want to raise their voices in protest against having toxic industries placed in their communities. I'm Eli Turner, a third year student at Columbia Law and one of the hosts for this episode. I'm particularly interested in this topic that we're covering because I'm interested in environmental racism and the ways that the environment under the law can be used as a tool of social control. Later on, you'll see a professor at Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. First, you'll hear from my classmate and co-host for this episode, Bridget. Thanks, Eli. Uh, hey, everyone. My name is Bridget McCoy, and I'm also a third-year law student at Columbia Law. I came to law school in part for, uh, um, actually, entirely for my interest in environmental law and environmental justice. Um, during my second year of law school, I wrote a research paper um, called A Note, which is kind of the jumping off point of the mental injustice issues in, um, in the area of Louisiana, known as Cancer Alley, and um, how that intersects with anti-protest laws and generally with segregation and the concentration of Black people in areas and how that allows um, people with nefarious plans to place um, harmful infrastructure in those areas. And that can have sort of cascading impacts in other areas of the law, including potentially policing of speech and incarceration potentially. Um, so that's how we got, I got in contact with Rice St. James and uh, Black woman-led environmental justice organization based in Cancer Alley, Louisiana. And that's where I am a, a member and president, um, uh, sorry, co-founder and vice president of Rice St. James. Do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Stephanie Cooper. I am the vice president of Rise St. James. Uh, currently live in St. James, Louisiana. And currently, uh, as of July 19, 2021, 
uh, and retired after 30.7 years as a school teacher. And uh, been with Rice St. James for about three years now. Um, been doing a lot of awe-inspiring, wonderful thing in the community um, as far as uh, being an environmental activist, um, which is something that is heartwarming to me, and it is something that is personal as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, since You're you brought welcome. up that this is this issue is personal to you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why environmental justice, environmental racism is personal to you? As time progressed, I noticed that health situation, you know, started going on with me as far as being an allergist. And I became 50 at that time. I'm like, I went to my doctor, chronic infection, chronic sinus infection, throat infection, strep throat, upper respiratory issues going on. Then also noticed the debris and filaments of um, grain from the grain elevator in Conville, Louisiana as it began to set on my vehicle and on the homes as well. So I began to inquire to my doctor. I said, um, doctor, I said, well, I've never had, you always had me as a, a patient since a little girl, and I never had upper respiratory. I never had throat infection. I never had sinus infection. I never had chronic sonic infection. I'm 50 years old, 50 at 50. Why am I having this issue? Would you be able to list the factories that you can think of that are close to you? Yeah, it was just so many of them. Uh, we have like 12 industries that popped up on the um, river road. And if Famosa want to try to come in, that is 13 and 14 uh, industries in one. But we have plastic, we have chlorophyll. We do have the, uh, just like I said, the sulfur as well. We do have on the other side of the river in Convent, you have Occidental plant as well, which is a chemical plant. On the other side as well, there's another industry that's want to be in close proximity of our park, you know, the park that we have. So now our kids are going to have to wear oxygen tank to go to the park. You know, most of Louisiana, if you look, our bayous, our wetlands are really, really disintegrating. We're losing it. And that is something that should be our priority because we need to do something to maintain the land. And maintain the people, all people. They are a human being in the sight of God. And let me tell you something, Miss Bridget. If people really believe in the God and the faith that they profess, not only the governor, I'm talking about all those politicians. What makes them think that we don't believe in economic development? We're all for that. But at the expense of the lives of people, Black and brown people, don't talk about it. Do it. People are hurting. People are sick. And people are ill. And uh, we also used to have the opportunity of sitting on the porch, enjoying the breeze and the fresh air, the opportunity to put your clothes on the line and let the wind blow through your clothes. You can't do that anymore because of pesticides and uh, a combination of chemicals being up on um, your clothing on the line. You can't sit outside because, you know, it's like snowflakes and other chemicals and the foul odor. Uh, that has happened. Even the birds and the butterfly know that this is not a place for anyone to live because we no longer see the grasshopper, uh, uh, crickets, and uh, you know the dragonfly and, and the beautiful butterfly that used to frolic back and forth, and certain blur birds that used to be out there. You know, having your scream though and have set, enjoy the breeze. You know, by sitting on the porch, you, you no longer have that anymore. People have been having, you know, upper respiratory. We have some that died from cancer. 
from uh, other type of ailment that has been going on because of the land, uh, the air and the water that we breathe, you know, and you can do, you definitely can tell the difference in the smell and the stench when you go elsewhere outside of the area. Thank you for that. So in your experience, how does race play in the environmental conditions African-American people face in Louisiana and in St. James Parish and in the parishes along the lower uh, Mississippi River? Without a doubt, if you take an area view and begin to talk with anyone who does not have eyes, it will be obvious to them that race is going on. It will be obvious today with us, us who do have eyes to see it has to be race when it comes to who's going to get the industry and who are not. Who's going to pay the piper for it and who's not. It's very obvious. Very obvious. And I feel to believe that they know it. Because when the land is being given or shown to the industries, the people in the industries have been told that nobody lives there. There's no African, there's no home there. They're shown greenery. They're shown a field with grass, with no homes. That is the way, that is the underlying procrastination that is going on. That if you want something sold, this is what you have to do. Excavate land, take from people who feel to believe that do not have a voice or will not say anything. I really feel to believe that it was purpose and plan because they know no one is going to have this one on his side, this political person on his side. I really feel to believe that it was um, something that was planned and plotted undercover. I really feel to believe that. You know, as a school teacher, and this relates, and another thing what people need to do is tell their truth. Keep your First Amendment. Your voice. So once someone have your voice, they have you. Well, that uh, that actually segues really nicely. This talk about First Amendment rights and speaking your voice. Why do you think it's so important to speak up on these issues and for your community? Besides emotion and compassion and love for God's people, truth, fairness, equity, and looking at the suffering of others. It brings me back to the scripture where Jesus talked about and tell us that we're going to always have the poor with us. Don't we have it? The widowers, the least, the least of them. Those are the words that Jesus spoke himself. Well, who are the least of these? One of them is whom you're talking to now, Bridget. I am a least of them because I'm living in one of those areas. I refuse to lease because I was here first. They're the one that needs to move. They're the one that needs to leave. I want to be conscious of time, so I just want to ask a few more questions. What kind of organizing work have you been involved with, with Rice St. James? Uh, We've done a march. We didn't march to the state capitol. We did march in New Orleans, St. John, St. James, uh, Convent. Uh, We did marches there. Uh, We did, um, just like I said, marches for Amendment Number 5 as well. Uh, Uh, Can you describe what Amendment 5 is? Amendment five was an amendment they were trying to pass where if you will go and protest on industries or any type of property, you would get arrested and it would be a felony and you will go to jail for a very long time. The last few minutes we have, have you personally experienced any harassment or efforts by the police or Formosa or anybody else to get you to stop? 
but I'm going to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, underhandedly, if that makes sense. Yeah. Some can be physical that you know, and some can be physical that you don't know. That's what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. So, yes. So to answer that question, yes. Wow. That's must be so difficult to organize in that situation. I just have one specific event I'd love to hear you talk about. Were you at the um, Juneteenth prayer ceremony at the burial ground of the enslaved people that was on the land that Formosa was planning on building upon? Yes. Uh, I was on a, a burial ground there. That was the event that we did. We had a lot of men of the clergy there. We had an event where we had all of the faith community together. We had Catholic Baptists, people in the community, outside of the community as well. Um, Formosa did set aside a fence to fence one area where they have slaves. We know for a fact that there are many other areas on that land that has not been geared off like this part. But yes, I was there. We had an awe-inspiring program where we give honor to our ancestors who resided, toward the ground, uh, worked the ground, died on the ground, cried on the ground, danced on the ground, jubilated and celebrated when, when freedom came on the grounds as well. So we had a ceremony where we had dancers that came from New Orleans and they danced on the ground in honor of the ancestors. It was awe-inspiring um, where they also passed their hands upon the ground while dancing, uh, giving commemoration and love and compassion to the, the hard part fight that they had and um, how we feel the same thing because we are doing the same thing as we speak, fighting now for them and as well for ourselves and uh, letting them know that the fight is still not finished, uh, not even completed, the work is not done and that we feel their love and their pride and them cheering us on at the same time. As a matter of fact, as it got quiet and the wind began to blow, I was telling the people to remain quiet because our ancestors are receiving our prayers, our applause, our love, our admiration for them. And they are with us. And they thank us also from fighting the fight because victory may not be now, but victory is coming and is coming soon. Thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to give you the chance to say anything else that you want our listeners who aren't familiar with these issues. Is there anything you'd like to say to them? Wow. First thing I would like to say is thank you. Our heartfelt thank you for wanting to do such a story on some of the least of them people of politics or of power may think as we tell our story, as you see us marching, as you see us on social media, as you see us trying to break the chains of injustices, environmental racism, help us to walk that walk and to talk that talk in equality, holding hands together, not even for one second, looking down to find out and see if that hand is white, if that hand is black, that hand is brown, if that hand is someone who lived differently from us. But holding hands to say, we are fighting and we are in this together, no matter what. 
Come what may. Come what may. Well, thank you for helping us. This has been such a fabulous conversation. So, Bridget, it's been a few weeks since your conversation with Stephanie. And what is your takeaway from that? I mean, it's just so important to talk to people who have these lived experiences in um, uh, environmental justice, environmental racism is obviously um, something that we talk a lot about. And critical race theory itself is something that's very talked about. But when it is just so obvious, like Ms. Um, Cooper said, when you zoom out and just look on the ground when it becomes very clear that this is um that the health harms are happening to black people and um the the same kind of uh the same kind of care that's being done towards white families and also the um in white communities and the targeting that's happening to black communities is just so obvious on the ground that all these um legal terms that we kind of think about and that we hear um and these issues of discriminatory intent really just don't matter right um i think one of the things that we talked a lot about in our critical race theory is how colorblindness in the law and the desire um of the supreme court to see evidence of discriminatory intent um in any sort of civil rights case or any sort of civil rights issue or obviously none of these factories are going to be like we don't like black people um but that's very like you know this is what's happening on the ground and so these people are just completely um these people in these communities are completely outside of the protection of the law yeah i totally agree with everything you just said i think that um you know hearing from stephanie we really see the importance of political action and then some of the challenges of turning political action into legal action and you know ideally legal victories um and yeah just like you said it's uh it's a hard road to fight but we have to keep fighting it all right so um i'm here eager to hear your conversation with professor forbes yeah, yeah, we spoke um, back in November on the phone, and um, I got to ask Professor Forbes a little bit about um, his experience as a city planner and his perspective on some of the challenges of planning um, safe urban spaces for Black people, um, you know, in what's historically been a white-dominated and even openly racist field. Um, and he's spent his career as city planner here in the city. So he definitely has some insights into black neighborhoods around the city, especially here in Harlem, um, as most of his experience focuses on Manhattan. Um, and he also brings this really interesting perspective, um, having been a active member of the Black Panther Party, um, kind of at the apex of, of the party's existence, um, serving as a quartermaster out in California. So uh, Flores Forbes has a ton of interesting perspectives, and uh, I'm excited to share our conversation with you all. You know, I, I joined the Black Panther Party when I was 16 years old, and I was there for 10 years, at least in the like above ground type environment. And then I was a fugitive for three years, and then after that term, I went to prison for like five. New York City was, is the best laboratory to study urban planning under. 
because it's the most uh, complicated development process, and this is where all the big developers are, it's where all the major architects are. When I was a real estate developer, there was an inv- um, a black female investment banker who we were working with, and she uh, primarily used to do municipal bonds. And she told us, told me during uh, one of our consultations that, and there and there are multiple regression models that they build to price bonds. Um, she said that they use the third grade test scores of black boys as a uh, significant variable in order to determine number of, of beds, prison beds that would be needed. You know, so I, I, you know, I'll never forget that. And I thought that was a significant piece, and 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 it's and it's basically part of their their their, um, their model building. So it's not very much that's been written about it. I've seen different people try to debunk that that's what happens, but there are that that is some that is there is a measure of that type that is used with regards to pricing the bonds. You know, most of the planning apparatus in New York City was developed around uh, having clean water, you know, and that was one of the bigger issues there. But the, um, you know, the kind of development process and and how people became these power brokers probably evolved a lot around this guy named Robert Moses, who was... um, you know, and his his book, The Power Broker, is is what is taught in urban planning schools and that sort of thing. And you know, and this and he he was a guy who um, um, was a uh, planner, but he clearly uh, developed planning uh, using race as a uh, significant variable. You know, actually, you know, there's a, a story about how he planned the bridges. Uh, for all the in the parkways and that sort of things to be so low that the buses could not go under them, so that people of color who were trying to take the buses to go to the beach couldn't couldn't get there through his his parkways. You know, a lot of these zoning uh, rules and 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 procedures are facially neutral, um, but we see that you know there's really high levels of demographic concentration, like in terms of race. And we also see that um, that concentrate, like racial concentration overlaps with um, other indicators, like you mentioned, third grade reading levels or asthma levels, um, as we talk about elsewhere in our, uh, in our podcast. So how do these facially neutral laws and policies um, kind of contribute to those like coinciding uh, variables? Okay, you know, I, I I I don't think that they're that they're that they're neutral because if they're part of the urban planning process, you know, race is still a significant variable there. Um, you know, today you still have in different parts of definitely in Upper Manhattan, particularly in Harlem, you still have a, a controlling urban renewal plan. And these plans were developed uh, to segregate, you know. Uh, um, I worked on uh, years ago the Frederick Douglass Boulevard Initiative, 
was a was as a result of an urban renewal plan. And there was 16 acres of vacant land that was there uh, that had been, you know, the area had been cleared and it had been vacant for 30 years. <laughs> okay. And um, the only reason why, you know, as, as a land use planner working for the, the, the borough, I mean, we had to work to develop that land and to create a plan, one that was controlled by us. And, you know, we brought in a uh, yeah, kind of a left-leaning urban designer who was an urban planning professor here at Columbia University, Lionel McIntyre. And we realized, you know, we had an opportunity here to create affordable housing, <clears throat> you know, with space and light. Because the developers, the kind of downtown developers, they wanted control of that, that land. This was a major corridor, you know, kind of the gateway into upper Manhattan, and there was this plan. I mean, a lot of people believe there was this conspiracy because you have all these beautiful brownstones in upper Manhattan and in Harlem, and that, um, you know, after people who had left the city, they were returning to the city. Yeah, that is so fascinating to hear about how race is kind of in some ways obviously used to create this this urban environment and to decide where people are going to live but at the same time it's kind of hidden beneath this language of of affordability and this kind of economic sensibility which uh you know has the veneer of rationality um and and the veneer of neutrality um when in fact, it's 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 clear just from looking at at maps and and you know just even walking around the city that um, mm-hmm. there's nothing neutral about these the, these these plans at all. And also, it's it's so he- heavily organized. Like you mentioned, all of these different groups and foundations and nonprofits that uh, contribute to um, the the creation of these affordable housing zones which you know that's like the only place that certain groups of people can afford to live and so they end up bounded within these geographic spaces and that kind of brings me to my next question which is once people are in those spaces once you have these um you know communities uh of black people or hispanic people or asian americans or you know what have you um how are they regulated and how do um, environmental policing tactics play into, uh, you know, the kind of maintenance of these <clears throat> racial boundaries? Right. Well, I mean, you know, when you start talking about uh, environmental issues like, um, you know, waste disposal plants, bus barns that are built, um, you know, again, those are issues where you look at the, the city, the city, you know, through through the um, what, what could, what's called the interim laws in terms of people not paying their taxes, the city seizes the property. So there was this disproportionate number of, of uh, you know, tax arrears in uh, mostly communities of color. And so if you notice that there are these bus barns in Harlem 
you know, I mean, you know, the, the irony in that is, okay, we're building a new campus in Manhattanville, one, and I think it's in phase two, <clears throat> there's a bus barn right there in the Manhattanville area that part of our agreement with the state and the city is to put that bus barn below ground. Okay, it's going to be below grade. You know, uh, there's another one over on Third Avenue near 125th. And then you have these uh, these sanitation plants that are here that were just open. I think they built a park over one, but they said, well, we can make it not, we can make it so that it doesn't smell bad, you know. And so, you know, and so a lot of these, the, the decisions to locate these facilities there was because the land was owned by the city. And it was so, so therefore, because it was owned by the city, it would make it a lot cheaper. You know, and it just so happens that you had this, you know, disproportionate number of, of you know, what they call the in-rim properties that the city would, could seize. And um, they could seize them and then rezone the area to turn it into a an area where we can put one of these kind of facilities. You know, in many ways, like a manufacturing type uh, setup. Most of the planning is being done by it's not it's not being done by people of color. You know, people of color are not in the planning departments. I mean, most of the time when I was working for the city, or even when I was kind of the traditional planning, and even here at, at Columbia, you know, if there's a discussion, if there's a meeting around some land use process, I was usually uh, one of the few black people that was in the room. So you're kind of painting this picture for us of urban planning departments that are mostly white making these huge decisions about where people of color will be able to live in New York City. And then these same mostly white urban planning departments are also uh, being catered to by corporate interests in industry and manufacturing. And again, under this language of, uh, you know, affordability and, and, and mm -hmm. land prices, the uh, urban planning departments are allowing these industrial interest groups to put their infrastructure um, near these pockets of people of color who are then bearing the brunt of most of the environmental, um, let's call them externalities uh, that are falling out mm -hmm. of these, these uh, in industrial facilities. And then on top of that, we also have uh, social control in the form of policing. Uh, not necessarily environmental policing, as we just discussed, but also overt, uh, you know, use of the police force. Um, and so how does that, uh, you know, that overt policing kind of factor into this whole equation? What, what role does that play as a tool of social control with respect to the other things that we've been talking about? So I also wanted to move on uh, just to talk about some remedies. Um, so we've spent a lot of this conversation kind of diagnosing um, some of the different problems uh, and, and, and how things got the way that they are. 
Um, but un, like, like now that we have that understanding, what can we do about it? How can we empower um, people to, uh, you know, take back ownership of the spaces in which they live? Um, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, you, you know, I, I, one of the things that happened, I guess, with, um, so-called desegregation was that, um, black people didn't stay in, in the African-American communities. They started moving to different places and, um, and 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 I think that that's something that's that's you know that's that's, that's still going on. But I, but you, you do have people who are coming back, you know. And I think there are these you know um, enclaves that are being created, you know, where you have them in in certain areas. Some of them are affluent, you know, areas. Uh, you know, like in Los Angeles, you know, you have. Um, Certain areas where you have a lot of affluent black people, and those areas are, are, are thriving. You have it here in in, in Harlem, you know. Um, and, um, you know, in order to create, you know, these opportunities. I mean, you know, it, it's you know, like I, you know, there there are these 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 moments that are happening. You know, like even in you know, like at one time it was jazz, and you had a jazz community, and now you have um, you have hip hop. Which I think is 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 a little more robust because it's actually, you know, penetrated the kind of public uh, public idea that um, it's okay to use poetry with music. You know, it's kind of what it is, right? And it's okay to use poetry with music, and then talk about how uh, difficult your environment is, and that people will pay money for that. You know, and this is kind of this, you know, this wealth creation uh, aspect of that, right? But not everybody's going to do that. You know, so I think that you know you have these these opportunities, but I don't think that there's going to be this um, moment where everything is going to be, um, you know, in many ways segregated again. You know, in terms of bringing back, you know, opportunities for for people and. You know that sort of thing. I and so I, you know, I think that that's a, you know, it's a really interesting way of of, of looking at it because I don't think that um, you're going to have, um, you know, this drive to create these separate, um, you know, separate enclaves for 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 people of color, not when you have the opportunity to, you know, to to live somewhere else. If you had the power of, say, Robert Moses uh, in the contemporary day, what would you do to redesign the city and remedy some of these issues that we've discussed around um, segregation and social dominance and policing and um, environmental uh, hazards and all, all of these kind of things that, that we've talked about. If you had that level of power um, of like a Robert Moses, 
how would you sort of redesign the city? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, to, it's not about redesigning the city because it's, it's, you know, city regardless is made up of people. But I, I, I believe biggest issue, I mean, look, to me, white supremacy is the most powerful ideology in the world. Okay. It's baked into the Bible. It's baked into the Quran. I mean, any type of thinking, and it affects that. It had something to do with most of has something to do with most of the wars that are fought. Okay, so I think that one of the things you need to do is to, and and that would be this. You know, uh, how does that happen? Are you making this having this a, a re-education project? In order to get people to realize that, you know, um, I, I, I believe that, um, you know, there's a belief in, 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 in society that in order for, you know, for, for me to do well, someone else has to do bad you know, or be oppressed, you know, and that's the way this country has evolved, you know. So I think it would have some more to do with educating people you know, uh, around that and uh, sticking to that, you know, not being concerned if someone says, well, you know, it's critical race theory. So it's teaching, you know, uh, Biff and Muffin to not like themselves. Well, you know, Biff and Muffin should be concerned about what they believe. If it's believed, if they, if they believe that because they're white, that they are superior to someone who is not, you know. And, um, you know, that might not have a, a real positive result all the time, but I think that that's, that's, that's what would be important. I, d I don't think I would, I would look at redesigning uh, Manhattan without there being some major uh, education aspect. Having, having lived here, having worked here, having been involved with that, you know, um, white supremacy controls, it controls the, the urban planning process still. Right. The only reason why I have been successful in terms of doing things, I, I, I knew it was an oppressive um, practice. And by knowing it, you know, besides as the, um, you know, the great military theoretician Sun Tzu said, know your enemy, know yourself. Right. So if you know this is what's going on and you understand it, well, then how can you develop? Uh, a process, your guidelines to to overcome that, you know. And I, like I said, I don't think it has anything to do with the built environment. I think it has to do with the people that make up that environment. Uh, so, Eli, um, what are some of the things that you really took away from that conversation with Professor Forbes? Obviously, we got to know him a little bit during our critical race theory class, but you really got a chance to talk with him about his craft and, and his work. Yeah, I mean, first off, I really learned that Professor Forbes is just a pretty fascinating guy, um, and he really has some deep uh, experience with so many of these issues. Um, but I mean, issue specific, I think uh, Professor Forbes definitely stressed the importance of education in urban planning and um, the importance of thinking about the built environment as constitutive of the people as well. Um, and not just buildings and infrastructure and things like that, but um, really centering the people um, who are living in the city and 
designing the city for them and designing the city in a way that can educate them and where people can feel connected to their history and uh, informed by their history. And they can, uh, you know, that I think is the basis, at least from what I took away from Professor Forbes, that's the basis for, uh, you know, creating social progress, um, which in some ways is a really radical theory, I think. And um, I think some of the the ideas that he presents um, would not be mainstream on like even uh, kind of the most progressive uh, circles that we see today. But uh, I think he really touches on some, some key issues. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kendall Thomas. I am Flores Ford. And this is CRT2, Columbia Race Talks, Critical Race Theory.